the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. So hello everybody and welcome to episode 7 of our second series of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean, joined today by Mr Paul Gosling. Paul, how's things? Fine as ever, Jared, and you? Ah, good, good. Struggling on, like we have to. So, just a point out, due to COVID-19, we're recording this separately, as you'd expect, over Skype and whatever else, as was the interview. So, there might be a slight dip in quality, but that's not too bad at all. And we are, as always, delighted to be funded through the Community Relations Council Media Grant Scheme. They fund this podcast. So, Paul, today we are featuring an interview that you did with Daniel Holder from the CAJ. That's right. Uh, Daniel is the Deputy Director of the Committee on the Administration of Justice, a specific Northern Ireland body dealing with human rights and the legacy of the Troubles. Okay. Daniel gets Sunday a great deal of detail here whenever he's talking about human rights, and it's a, it's a fascinating approach to look at the subject, especially when you, you put it in a Troubles context. But I think the, the first thing that I took from it was the, the ethical approach that he talks about when you're talking about human rights, because they are international standards. They're not something that we can make up here. Yeah, I think that is really the key to this conversation, to be honest, Gerard. Uh, I have interviewed a lot of politicians over recent years in Northern Ireland, and they focus on the need for justice in Northern Ireland to ensure that we don't have any repeat of violence here. But what they talk about in terms of justice is really quite significantly different things. But what Daniel was saying is that we do have objective standards around what human rights are and what justice is. And we need to go back to what's been agreed within international law. Yeah, he refers to justice as being one of three strands, if you like, of dealing with conflict. That, that justice in the terms of criminal proceedings and stuff. But the truth and the guarantees of non-recurrence of violence are also really important here. That's right, because the reality is that with all the history of tension we've had within our society, that is always the risk that things go down to orange and green issues rather than focusing on the objective. And therefore, we have to have clarity over what is objective, what we're talking about, and then have consistent standards for all, if you like, to refer to this way, the actors within the, the environment of the, of the conflict. Okay. Let's hear the conversation that you had with Daniel. Do you want to talk through a bit about the organisation, what it started, what its remit is? Sure, yeah. We were set up in 1981, um, at the height of the conflict, as a, a human rights organisation. So we're one of the main sort of locally or Belfast-based human rights organisations. We have had a focus on conflict-related issues, but that's in its, in, a, in its broadest sense. I mean, certainly when we were set up at that particular time, we were, we were trying to stop human rights violations as, as they were occurring. Sort of, We had a different phase of our existence into the 1990s, into the discussions on the peace process, whereby it was much more around mainstreaming human rights frameworks as a, as, as into the peace agreements and peace settlements. And I suppose ever since we've been uh, trying to prevent a lot of the, the, the progress that was made at that time being rolled back. And although... although um, a lot of our more high-profile work is sometimes around sort of the legacy of the conflict. Um, we take a very a broad approach as to the, the issues that would cover. So it would cover as well a lot of socioeconomic issues, which were obviously instrumental uh, drivers and the, and, and the causes for conflict and, and certainly w- would be again in any, uh, uh, any deterioration of the situation. 
And, and you've done a lot of work around the human rights of uh, migrant workers uh, in the context of Brexit as well, of course. We have indeed, yes. I mean, Brexit, um, as indeed now COVID-19 will be, Brexit was uh, something that happened and, and, and caused us to, to reorientate uh, our work considerably on the on the back of the referendum. Now, we already had a body of work on, on anti-racism, but, but certainly the um, context that it created, um, what we've dubbed in the title of one of our conference reports, divided by the rules in the sense that um, on the back of a whole series of interventions that were actually meant to uh, lessen the barriers between different communities in, in the Northern Ireland context, essentially what Brexit does is it hardens the entitlements barriers between different groups of citizens, whether that's British or Irish or, or whether that's uh, our various migrant worker communities, and creates a different context where um, racial discrimination and sectarian differentials can, can flourish, and, and that's been the focus of our inter intervention on the Brexit front. And what's your guiding ethical approach and your objectives? Well, our guiding approach is really international human rights standards. Um, and by that, we always say you can't make human rights up. Some people try to. Uh, way back, the example sometimes that we give is the, when the smoking ban came in way back and people were sort of going, well, what about my right to smoke? And you think, well, you don't actually have a right to smoke. You've just you know, made that up. Um, it's human rights are things that are agreed in, in, in international treaties at the level of the United Nations and the Council of Europe. Um, and matters of international law, we're talking about things like uh, the civil and political rights, rights, freedom uh, against torture, right to a fair trial. You're talking about uh, uh, socioeconomic rights, like rights to, to, to health and uh, and housing and work and, uh, and what those rights actually mean. And in practice, that's the framework within which we operate because we think it, it, it broadly provides um, solutions and indeed a, a decision-making framework that can deal with a lot of the issues, including justice issues that come up in relation to um, the North and the Northern Ireland conflict in general. What I'm getting at really, Daniel, is to what extent are these matters uh, of objectivity and to what extent are they subjective? And the reason why I, I phrase that is that uh, I've done lots of interviews around how we make progress here. And one of the abiding impressions I've been given is the difference of interpretation as to what the word justice means, in particular around the Troubles. So to what extent can we objectively define justice? Well, that's the whole point of human rights law. The whole point of human rights law, which isn't designed for here, obviously it's designed for, for everywhere, is to have an objective framework whereby everyone is equal before the law and laws themselves, when passed by national or regional governments or whatever, have to reach certain standards so that they're actually uh, uh, objective and fair. And this isn't a question of sort of different identities having different interpretations, really. This is really a question of, um, I suppose it's a question of abuse of power in the past when the legal framework, uh, A, contained a lot of laws that were partisan and unfair, but B, also wasn't applied to everyone equally. And that has been essentially the, <laughs> without overusing the word, the legacy of legacy issues that we're dealing with. But in terms of what justice is meant to mean, um, I mean, there are dozens of international human rights standards that set out, and, uh, right, it's a developing body of law, what that should mean both in a general context, but also in a in a legacy context where there is recognition that 
there is a difference in situation and justice is often seen as one of three strands with dealing with either a I suppose what you could call a post-conflict society, perhaps we'd be better off calling ourselves a society emerging from conflict. Um, justice is one strand of how you can deal with, with legacy alongside truth, but also very importantly guarantees of non-recurrence, uh, i.e. if a conflict, as, as was ours, was fueled by patterns of human rights violations, um, that we um, are in a position to develop structures to stop them recurring. Uh, and stop ourselves being trapped in a in a cycle of conflict. But it's despite what you're saying there, Daniel. It seems to me it's difficult to avoid uh, an orange and green interpretation of what justice means in the context of the troubles. When I've interviewed uh, a Republican politician, he made the point that for him justice was dealing with the origins of the troubles and achieving a, a fairer society. But when I've spoken to unionist politicians, it is about achieving criminal convictions arising out of uh, offences during the Troubles. And if I speak to somebody else, it might be a completely different view of that in the sense that if you take cases to court that actually uh, cause additional problems and upset and uh, grievous harm to those who are relatives of people who died, then actually that may be an unfair outcome. So how does one balance those different views of what's happened? Well, look, I suppose you could use justice in a generic concept, a context, but when it's actually used in the, in the terms of, of human rights law, it tends to mean bringing people to justice, bringing people before the, before the courts for, for, for criminal offences. The much broader issues around what could be generically called justice could be around truth, could be around uncovering the fact of what happened as part of a state policy or... Um, who was in command of control of a paramilitary organised sort of much broader issues around um, uh, what happened in the past. But ju justice um, is meant to refer to that body of uh, in a legacy context whereby people are brought before the courts. But however, there's that common theme within all sort of conflict-related societies that um, there will be a clamour for justice, but sometimes for some people, and outside of the human rights perspective, that's justice for everyone but their own side, uh, but the, the group they were either aligned to or were supported to, who, whose actions they will feel were, were, were justified and somehow beyond um, legal norms. And that's essentially what's playing out at the moment. You, I mean, the example you gave um, in relation to, say, Unionist politicians um, seeking justice, i.e. persons being brought before the courts. Well, what's really playing out at the moment and what's delayed legacy, and this is not necessarily unionist politicians, but certainly more conservative politicians or, or a particular sector of conservative politicians, is a desire that that doesn't apply to the security forces. So it's a sense of, um, yes, people have to be brought before the courts, but only some people. And that essentially has been the, the, the problem of the application of the rule of law per se during the actual troubles that we're still dealing with now in, uh, in, a, in a legacy sense because the rule of law during the actual conflict, um, whilst on paper it may have applied to everyone in practice, it, it certainly didn't. And you can look at that at every single level of the, the criminal justice process if you wanted to take an evidence-based analysis to that. 
Now, we're speaking just after a report was published, which you were uh, co-author of, which looked at specifically the actions by the British government in uh, avoiding uh, prosecutions of soldiers. And what you've argued, I think, is a breach of the principles of the Stormont House Agreement. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about that, Daniel? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the drive, the, the British and Irish governments with the five parties negotiated and produced the Stormont House Agreement back in 2014. And ever since, the, the British government has been under a duty to, to legislate and implement that agreement and has done everything possible to try and water down its terms and delay its implementation. Um, now, in January of this year, within the New Decade New Approach document, a commitment was given to legislate for the Stormont House Agreement legacy mechanisms within 100 days, and that would have included setting up an historical investigations unit, a completely independent unit um, from for, from all different sets of protagonists so that it could investigate all unresolved uh, deaths through the troubles, whether caused by Republicans, loyalists, the security forces, or collusion deaths that involve various of those protagonists. Um, what has happened is um, the UK government now appears to have done quite a significant U-turn on that um, that it announced on the 18th of March, whereby a different process will be brought in uh, whereby certain cases will be fast-tracked. Now, we don't know the details of this, but essentially what's driven this uh, is quite explicitly at times a desire not to have the rule of law applied to the security forces in those cases, which which goes back very much to the beginning of the, the conflict and an argument that the application of the rule of law, the application of the criminal justice system is somehow a, a witch hunt against uh, soldiers or former members of the security forces. And I mean, we looked at the statistics on that, both past and present, and it simply, uh, simply is fake news. It simply is. A, um, it, it doesn't stand up to, to any sort of intellectual credibility or, or, or scrutiny, unless, of course, your starting point is that the rule of law simply shouldn't apply to the, to the, to the security forces, which goes back to the conceptualisation I mentioned earlier on. But I think a, a viewpoint held by unions politicians would be, well, there's been a breach of those principles in the sense that Republicans were uh, released early, that the, the, on, the run letters were issued, and in a sense there's perhaps, from their point of view, an equality if soldiers are not going to be prosecuted when some Republicans were either let out early or weren't prosecuted. Well, two of the uh, key strands in the... Um which narrative are the two issues you've just mentioned, but both of them are really, again, don't stand up to, to credibility, particularly because of the issue of proportionality in prosecutions originally. But let's take the early release scheme. The early release scheme applies to everyone, Republican, loyalist, or security forces, um, members of the military or indeed the IUC um, that have been in prison for conflict-related defences, would have had the early release scheme equally applied to them and still will. The thing was, um, there hardly was any. At the time of the Good Friday Agreement, there were in fact only two soldiers in prison for murder at that time and for political reasons. And you can read the Hansard, the government at the time were fairly open about this, um, chose to release the two soldiers just, I mean, I think it was a few weeks before paramilitary prisoners were released from the maze under the early release scheme. So in, in exactly the same way, um, but not using the same uh, scheme, but that scheme was there for everyone. It just so happened that uh, that 
soldiers weren't in prison. In terms of the statistics of imprisonment, um, I mean, the British Army's own Operation Banner report shows around four soldiers were imprisoned um, for offences relating to murder during, from the regular British Army during the conflict. The equivalent figure for Republicans is, well, their estimates, there are no official figures, the estimates are in the tens of thousands, um, and for loyalists, estimates around twelve to 15,000. But I think this, if you want to just crystallise this, that one of the problems was, and let's look at the very beginning of the conflict as an example, because that's the period being dealt with in terms of contemporary legacy investigations at the moment. Um, if you think of things like uh, Bloody Sunday uh, and other uh, events that occurred at that time. If you look at the first five years of the conflict, I have the statistics here. Essentially, there were 189 uh, people uh, shot dead by the security forces, the vast majority, 170, by the, the British Army. Now, in terms of the number of convictions of soldiers during that period, the figure is zero. In terms of the number of prosecutions of soldiers during that period, the figure is zero. In terms of the number of IUC police investigations of the actions of soldiers for those killings in that period, the figure is zero. Essentially, the entire structure of the criminal justice system was disapplied to soldiers. Now, you could say, um, well, maybe all the killings were by soldiers or whatever were, were justifiable in the, uh, 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 in the circumstances now. Um, and that's an argument often put forward that this was lawful self-defence, it was crossfire, it was whatever else. But simply, that doesn't really bear scrutiny either. For a start, if those events have never been in independently investigated, um, and the, the experience of many people is, is quite contrary as to the circumstances of those uh, deaths, then that doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But even looking at the statistics, I mean, 63% of the people who were shot dead by the military at that time were undisputedly unarmed at the time they were shot. In fact, only a very small number, around 10%, were in possession of a weapon but weren't necessarily causing the imminent threat that would have meant they couldn't have just been arrested um, rather than shot. So you had a whole system whereby if cases ever reached court, you sometimes had perverse judicial decisions, partisan judicial decisions, whereby people uh, who should have been convicted weren't. You had a system whereby a member of government, the Attorney General essentially at the time, who could sit at Cabinet, was able to um, put pressure on or veto prosecutions of members of the military. But you also had an agreement whereby the IUC weren't even allowed to investigate killings by the military in that era. So that's what happened at the beginning. You now get to a stage after the Good Friday Agreement where we think have things like the, the HET, the Historical Inquiries Unit, well, you see the same differential pattern re-emerge. If you look at all the cases that were reviewed by the HET and then passed up for full police-type investigation, none of them were the military cases. In fact, um, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, which, given its name, is hard, can hardly be dismissed as a Republican front, um, conducted a review of how the HET dealt with these types of state involvement cases and found that the manner they were dealing with them was so partisan um, that it was effectively unlawful. And that's why we've reached a stage whereby, uh, although the legacy cases being dealt with in the current system, current piecemeal system, are still overwhelmingly Republican paramilitary cases, um, it's argued, well, um, there's more state cases than the proportion of 10% of people that were directly killed by the security forces. That is, if you don't uh, factor in 
collusion cases. But the reason for that is very much grounded in the failure to apply the rule of law to the security forces, both at the time and in the initial batch of, of, of legacy investigations. So on all of those issues, I think the other one you mentioned was the on-the-runs. Yeah, well, we know the on-the-runs um, scheme was not an amnesty. It was essentially a procedural process uh, whereby someone was told whether they were a wanted person or not. And as we've seen with the, the current charges against John Downey, it doesn't prevent um, uh, subsequent evidence coming up and someone being uh, charged um, in relation to, to those offences. So we do see that kind of narrative as uh, as not having intellectual credibility. There's not been a single conviction from a member of the security forces since the the Good Friday Agreement, far from a, a witch hunt. What we are actually looking at now is the belated application of the rule of law to cases involving the security forces. Remember, no member of the security forces is going to do time for murder, and if they do do time, it'll be the, the two years, unless they are convicted in a court of having committed murder to the high criminal standard of beyond reasonable doubt. So we just don't see... This, the, the kind of dynamic that somehow the security forces are being unfairly treated, A, isn't correct, but B, is really driving this desire not to implement the Stormont House Agreement or any other mechanism that will scrutinise the actions of the security forces. But it could be argued from where we are now in uh, 2020 that uh, it's too late, really, to be doing any prosecutions uh, from this time to to achieve a, a reliable outcome. And perhaps it would be better to have a, a, a truth commission that examines all the, the events rather than actually to go through any sort of criminal prosecutions for events such a long time ago where there's unreliability of evidence, perhaps. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's broad consensus across practically everyone that any legacy process, and particularly one that's just looking at, at all unresolved individual cases, in reality is going to le lead to very, very few convictions for the reasons you have set out. Um, and even the way the Stormont House Agreement Historical Investigations Unit is structured um, implicitly recognises that and that its main product isn't really going to be a, a prosecution for each family. I think there's a recognition that the, the quality of evidence, the, the, the existence of witnesses, many of whom will have since passed on, as will many of the, the suspects and victims, um, and the lack of sort of forensic exhibits mean that convictions are very unlikely. And the main product, essentially, is going to be a, a family report whereby the facts of each case um, and as is required by human rights law, where, where the, the state was involved at a level of culpability as to whether a, a particular death at the hands of the state was, was, was lawful or unlawful, will be covered in a family report. So what we essentially have really is a, is a hybrid process that, that isn't just focused on justice, i.e. bringing people before the courts, but is also focused on truth. But it's interesting you should bring up the idea of, well, why not just have an overarching sort of broad truth commission as other countries have had. I mean, at the very beginning of the legacy discussion, that was one of the uh, proposals in various forms put forward. And from our perspective, it's a fairly solid um, proposal. The problem was that that was dismissed at the very beginning, above all, um, by, by the British government that just did not wish to have a, a, a truth-type commission, which is why we ended up in the situation 
after many, many years of torturous negotiation of uh, a sort of mix and match approach that tries to mix justice uh, and truth, but does so at a level of, of individual cases where the Stormont House Agreement will also have a, a, a truth recovery mechanism as well, the independent commission on information retrieval, whereby people can go and make protected statements uh, and that would give families access to to, to 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 a narrative of what happened not but not something that could be used in the in the criminal justice process but yes as, as essentially i think we've had a situation whereby the key actors within the, the british government and, and pressure from the security forces led to a situation whereby we didn't want a, they didn't want a, a truth commission partly because that would uncover matters of policy and practice that took place and then i mean that there were significant elements of security policy that were run outside the law, um, and particularly the way uh, informant-based collusion was run with paramilitary organisations, and there's been huge, relentless attempts to suppress that and to, to seek it from, to, to prevent it from from, from coming out um, through an investigative mechanism. Even with the Stormont House Agreement, there were all sorts of national security vetoes and other things that were built in to try and uh, prevent scrutiny of that particular area. So ironically, you had um, an establishment that were looking, well, look, not for truth commission, but for individual based justice. But essentially, with the presumption that things would go on as they were without that type of justice also applying to the security forces. Uh, and now it has begun to apply, albeit in a small hand number of cases. Uh, there is a backlash from the same establishment um, seeking an alternative remedy. So it's almost as if, yes, we wanted this this type of uh, justice-type mechanism, but just as long as it didn't apply to us. Because there is this perception that neither the security forces stroke British government nor paramilitary organisations are actually willing to engage in a, an honest and truthful engagement with an a, a, a open truth commission. Perception certain quarters, but it's worth a try. Um, and I mean, certainly, if we had the Stormont House Agreement set up um, five years ago when it was supposed to be, and we had the Independent Commission for Information Retrieval set up, we'd have a much better sense by now of how serious different protagonists were with their uh, commitments to actually engage um, in truth giving to, to that mechanism. So, uh, would you support that <laughs> approach then? Um, well, we've supported the Stormont House Agreement. It's not something we'd be running around the planet suggesting as a sort of marvellous blueprint for post-conflict resolution. Um, there are, and I mean, you've mentioned various forms of truth commissions. There are many other models that could have been considered. Our problem is this is a situation whereby you have a number of powerful actors that are, that are still in power, not, not least the... Um, successive UK governments that, that rejected that approach and therefore through negotiations that have added many, many years. And I suppose this is one of the frustrations that um, there have been a number of interventions over recent years with alternative processes. Now, some of those processes are just designed quite openly for sort of statutes of limitations and things like that to try and prevent the application of the rule of law to, to, to the military. But others are beginning to look again at the issue of amnesties and truth commissions and things like that. But you have to be conscious that those suggestions are coming up, were coming along really at what was the 11th hour, in fact, very late in the 11th hour of a process that had gone on for well over a decade. I mean, we had Eames Bradley, we had Hasso Sullivan, we had 
done the the Stormont House Agreement as a commemoration of what those who still hold various shades of, of political power, whether that be the governments, whether that be all of the the political parties were, were were willing to agree to, and that type of truth commission was one that was rejected at a the model was one that was rejected at a fairly early stage. And of course, just as it becomes more difficult with time to have a criminal justice process, it's also more difficult with time to have engagement from everyone who was involved at the time, many of whom have died. That, that's right. That's 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 abso- that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, sometimes there are, there are various approaches to the denial of um, truth recovery. Um, I have had one put forward by some. Act as that, that this is about the state's approach has been first of all to deny um, that human rights patterns of human rights violations took place. The, the second approach has been to delay the implementation of mechanisms, and the third approach has been, sadly, as you allude to, the, the die essentially that that, that relatives, uh, victims' families are, on all sides are are passing away with the the passage of time and they're going to their graves without the inquiry or the inquest or the investigation that would have clarified what happened to their loved one having taken place. Now, um, that may mean uh, and has meant that many families will will never know the truth uh, of what happened to their loved ones. However, what it doesn't mean is that this issue in any way is going to go away unless it's dealt with. It will continue to be... uh, a huge grievance uh, for many, many people until there is some sort of effective process that that, that provides closure. And I mean, the, the HET process, which I, I was critical of earlier on, and I think for the right reasons in, in, in relation to some of the flaws in that process, although to be fair to them, they were operating in a vacuum without any legal framework or, 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 or real powers and within the hierarchy of the, of, the, of the formal police service that obviously couldn't investigate independently uh, State, state cases, but that doesn't mean there wasn't good detective work done by uh, those employed within many parts of the HET and some of those reports that provide a, a measure of resolution to, 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 to some families and, and therefore that approach of producing a family report as was seen in the HAU will assist in providing closure for some, but we do, and that going back to that issue of non-recurrence, we do need to draw up patterns and practices, because if you look at some of the patterns of human rights violations um, that occurred during the conflict, I'm referring to the state here, but as, I mean, it's fairly straightforward with paramilitary groups from a human rights perspective. Everything they did was illegal and shouldn't have been done. With the state, the state could lawfully use force, but the patterns of human rights violations we see are things like the, the use of... Um, uh, disproportionate or unlawful lethal force um, but by the military and the failure to investigate it. We look at the patterns of the use of, of torture and inhuman degrading treatment. Um, again, we look at the issues around um, the use of informants, which every police service uses, but the use of informants outside the law in a manner of collusive uh, practices. and. Uh, to the extent that all three of those, far from the claim that you sometimes get, particularly with the informant-based issue, that somehow that helped bring the conflict to a close, what we see is, far from that, it didn't save lives, it cost many more lives, it fueled the conflict for ages, uh, it prolonged it for, for a particular period, and, and the concern would be that unless there's some level of accountability for those practices, they'll happen again. I mean, if you look at the 
the, the issues around torture, the five techniques, or the, certainly more than five have been discovered now. Um, and you look at the way they were used, say, in the 1970s here, and, and there was limited accountability for them. They then popped up again in Iraq and Afghanistan in, in different theatres and appear to have fueled sectarian and other conflicts um, in those countries as well. So it is a question about uh, getting accountability for state practice and bringing security policy within the law so that it doesn't fuel conflict in the way uh, that it did in the uh, in the past year, particularly as we head into a, a another fairly uncertain period in our future for, for various factors. So if it becomes difficult to have a comprehensive process that addresses the injustices around individual killings, individual events, does that increase the burden of need to have a, an effective, comprehensive oral history archive? and to ensure that we actually have historians that take a broad and impartial approach to events. Yeah, but those, I mean, an oral history archive for, for individuals' testimonies is one thing, and also historians that are able to, to, to write up a narrative of, uh, of what have occurred is, a, is another very important strand. However, if a lot of the evidence and information remains hidden, then that's going to be quite a limited exercise. Um, and this is where you get into what the human rights duties are. The human rights duties are around an effective investigation into um, killings and other potential human rights abuses and, and human rights violations such as torture. Um, and that should be in each individual case whereby evidence is looked at and, and conclusions are arrived at. And the idea was that all of the mechanisms would uh, feed into um, a, a, a broader process whereby this information would be available. And I know there's an argument, um, and again, I think it's a total red herring, whereby, well, that's not fair because the state kept records and paramilitary organisations didn't. But, I mean, that's just silly. I mean, most of the state records um, are investigation files about the activities of paramilitaries, the vast, vast majority of interview notes, of case files, of investigations, of forensic evidence refer to the actions of, uh, uh, of armed groups and not of state actors. In fact, the information about state actors is the, the stuff that tends to go uh, missing and in inverted commas will be much more difficult to, to, to come across that we really do need to get to, the, well, <laughs> you would imagine a lot of it's already been destroyed, but that we really need to get to the bottom of what is still there um, whilst we can to be able to... Um, to, to paint an accurate picture of what went on, and particularly, um, if you want to call it lessons learned from failed elements of uh, 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 security policy, there's a there's a book that you may have heard of by the I'm sure you have by the journalist Ian Ian Cobain, um, called The History Thieves, um, that looks at the just the, the the history of the destruction of archives in the. Uh, UK's colonial retreat, want of a better term, from many uh, uh, different jurisdictions around the world. Um, and unfortunately, we are living in a situation where a lot of the archive material simply isn't available. And there's almost, a, I mean, I suppose from the outside, unless you're involved with a family, you don't see the the almost daily micro battles people have to go through to, to secure any bit of paper or any, even when there's a sort of formal justice process like say an inquest going on to get the 
disclosure of relevant documents from the Ministry of Defence or other agencies is, is incredibly difficult and, and delayed. So if you are going to have historians um, writing up a history, they need to do it on the basis of um, information that at the moment is, is still concealed and is only really going to be drawn out by a more comprehensive uh, truth-gathering uh, process. And if, unfortunately, that has to borrow the, the, the piecemeal sort of examination of of individual cases because no alternative overarching process is going to be agreed and that that is the only show in town at present. And are there any grounds for optimism? Well, um, I'd love to round this off with, with something positive. To my answer that, <laughs> I mean, it's depressing. It's very depressing at the moment and there's a huge lack of, uh, of trust. I mean, we have human rights standards and human rights law that are being increasingly uh, undermined. Um, and we have a, a British government at the moment that, are, that is populist and really is very difficult to believe anything they say. So, I mean, if, even if you look at the last six months, um, there was a general election in December 2019, and there was the British government published its legislative programme, the Queen's Speech, as it's known. Within that, there was a commitment to legislate to introduce the Stormont House Agreement, the following month, we had the New Decade, New Approach, where there was a commitment to legislate um, to introduce the uh, Stormont House Agreement legislation by April uh, into Westminster. You also had the British government on the international stage before the Council of Europe Committee of Ministers reiterating a commitment to the Stormont House Agreement. And then la that last month, um, in March, you just had a, a unilateral U-turn um, from the UK government on that. And again, it appears to be a government that not only as populist that is that is quite happy to base its positions on 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 fake news as the sort of they, they say this I mean the preposterous suggestion that there are vexatious prosecutions which a suggestion in itself which is the executive branch of government really undermining its own criminal justice system by sort of implying and suggesting that somehow the its own director of public prosecutions is engaged in sort of false or m m mischievous prosecutions of members of the of the military and, and it's notable and um, the sort of vexatious prosecutions narrative is always brought up in a rhetorical flourish but um, whether it's the uh, Boris Johnson or whether it's other senior uh, members of government no one yet has pointed a single case where there's or can be is capable of giving a simple single example simply because there aren't any of where there has been some sort of um, alleged vexatious prosecution. So it's depressing at the moment um, in the sense that you, you, you have a government that is a unpredictable but you also can't trust uh, in terms of which direction it's, it's, it's going to turn. I think someday it will have to return to the agreement though um, and the commitments that it's made because of the overarching framework of of human rights law, I'd, I'd be hopeful there will be more pressure from the, the international community the, in, the, in the form of the Council of Europe, which has nothing to do with the EU and remains attacked. It's the institution that oversees the European Convention of Human Rights, the implementation of judgments where the UK has already been found to have, have breached the right to life in a number of cases that went to the European Court of, uh, uh, of Human Rights. But if anything, it, it, it may realise at some point that the reputational damage of uh, uh, of cover-up and the allowing grievances to uh, to, to remain and, and, and be 
exasperated in this way is just going to be so damaging to to hear. But there's there's certainly there's certainly no sign of that at the at that at the moment under the under the under the present administration. Okay, interesting and in depth conversation. I think you'll agree there with Daniel Holder. Paul, legacy is something that struck me when he talked about rights and bringing it right back to looking at security forces in particular in the first few years of the conflict here. That's right. Um, I, I must admit, some of this stuff is really quite depressing that we go round in circles and we thought we had made progress with the Stormont House Agreement and then we find in recent months that, you know, what was agreed wasn't really agreed and will now be reconsidered and changed. And, and it is this real frustration. And, and perhaps Northern Ireland should have done what they did in South Africa to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where you actually say to people, you won't be prosecuted if you tell the truth and tell the whole truth and yeah. name what happened. Um, but equally, you know, I've, I've read the novel by David Parks on this theme, which points out in the intellectually, you know, theoretical basis, how that would actually lead to lots of other problems. And a number of other novelists have actually also looked at that theme and pointed out it might seem attractive, but actually there's a lot of other problems that you would embark on. And, you know, South Africa is not a model of a perfect society either, come to that. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Daniel talks about oral history archives and there's been oral history archives referred to as well within recent agreements and you mentioned some of these agreements have been either walked back or reconsidered. I think reconsidered is probably the best way to describe them. But I think the heart of that process is going to be in-depth analysis, taking a proper approach to to dealing with this and maybe taking an independent, where possible, approach to dealing with the past. Yeah, and this is something that, uh, if you remember back in the first series when I interviewed Robin Eames, that uh, Robin Eames also considered this, because the reality is that uh, we are now hopefully beyond violence, but we are, if you like, having a political struggle by other means, and that political struggle is the retelling of the events of the Troubles. And there is this tension conflict, if you like, in terms of who's telling the truth. And then the question is whether you can have an objective telling of the truth of something that was so bitterly divisive. Mm. Um, and, you know, perhaps an oral history archive is the best way of dealing with that, recognising on the one hand that the main political actors are never going to agree as to what actually happened, let alone whether it was justifiable, uh, but also recognising that actually, you know, there are events that did happen and you can perhaps get objectivity around some of those events at least. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right, well, that was it. That was the conversation with Daniel. It ended up a wee bit depressing, but I think it's really important <laughs> conversation, Paul. It, and I think it's something that it's an approach that people might not always consider, you know, taking a human rights look at things and placing ourselves in an international context. Yeah, and and going back to this once again, it because these things, these issues are so disputed, if we can go back to any objective standards, then that really is a welcome thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks to you, Paul, for carrying out the interview, and thanks to Daniel for taking the time. Thanks too to Emer Doherty for production support for this, and of course to our funders, the Community Relations Council and the Department for Foreign Affairs. So please subscribe where you access your podcast and share with anyone else you feel might be interested in this, and we'll talk to you again soon.
Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.